You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AMs, The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Margaret Adovga, Managing Director at Resource Work Society, and this week's topic is insights from the BC Business Summit, thoughts on the conflict in the Middle East and around the world, and implications for Canadian security and well-being. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us this morning. As always, pleasure to be here, Minkin. Now, Margaret, today you're attending the annual BC Business Summit. What are you hearing? Well, it's a very busy agenda here uh, this morning and into the afternoon, and uh, always a great chance to connect with members of the BC business community uh, coming from a variety of sectors. Uh, had a presentation, uh, rather a keynote, uh, from Lisa Wright, uh, which really caught my attention. Uh, she's the co-chair of an organization called the Coalition for a Better Future, and uh, Lisa Wright says former politician. Uh, she co-chairs that with another former politician, and McClellan. Um, so both of them uh, have been advancing this uh, group to really assess some of the fundamentals that underpin Canada's economic well-being. And uh, it's a timely moment for her to be here, given that uh, the BC business community has been expressing substantial concerns that it has about the competitiveness of British Columbia as a jurisdiction for continued and new investment. Uh, in a variety of highly productive industries. Um, some of the key points that came from Lisa's remarks that I wanted to share with you uh, were that we're taking prosperity for granted as Canadians, and I think that statement is certainly true as well for British Columbia. Uh, building back better, uh, she said, was a focus uh, during the pandemic, and while that was an important uh, thing to be considering, particularly what better looks like, um, you know, whether that's uh, renewed investment in renewable energy, uh, other forms of decarbonization in the economy, or some people would uh, certainly advocate for, and I do as well, uh, looking at our core economic fundamentals. Um, she says that there continues to be this running threat of concern that wasn't addressed in that period uh, about long-term economic growth. Uh, we need that for jobs, rising incomes, a clean environment, and a better quality of life for all communities. And uh, her and her uh, group are really concerned about this persistent weakness structurally in terms of our policies that threatens to undermine this collective well-being. In fact, on a per capita basis, our economy nationally hasn't really stalled, but it's actually contracted. Uh, economic productivity and labor productivity both actually look terrible right now. Uh, the latter of that, uh, which is, you know, the amount of output per hour worked by the worker, um, it's it has fallen in 11 of the last 12 quarters, and uh, we're seeing some really significant implications from that. Uh, cheap money, cheap borrowing, uh, whether that's for businesses building things or families buying homes, that's coming to an end. And uh, that's particularly challenging given the, the issues we have with attracting investment in the first place because of policies at different levels of government. Uh, on the household side, our debt-to-GDP ratio uh, which is the amount of debt that average households carry uh, in relation uh, to the, um, sorry, the debt carried by households, uh, what the nation as a whole has borrowed. Uh, it's about 107%. Uh, in the U.S., it's about 70%. So uh, there's a huge amount of borrowing happening, both at the household level and at the government level. Uh, we did a lot of that during the pandemic. And uh, that high debt burden, increasing interest rates, really affects the economic well-being of households and governments that invest in core services. So I uh, should really reiterate, reiterate this point that getting a return on investment is key for investors. Uh, so we need that to attract capital so we can continue to grow the economy and secure high standards of living for everyone, whether you're here in B.C. or elsewhere across the country. Uh, she also pointed to implications for
for macroeconomic policy. Uh, we need to have a low and stable inflation, and that requires fiscal policy working in concert with monetary policy, not at cost purposes, which is very often what we see now. Um, so lots to mull over there, certainly, but I'm uh, monitoring uh, what I hear from her and everyone else at this uh, event today very closely. Based on what the business community is saying, are there valuable takeaways for the B.C. government in terms of its direction on climate and energy policy? Absolutely. Um, I will just reiterate this call that uh, we're hearing from many corners uh, in the business environment here in B.C. The government needs to meaningfully evaluate the trade-offs that are uh, occurring. Uh, if the latest trajectory under Clean B.C., the provincial government's policy um, on uh, climate uh, and industry um, are fully implemented. And it needs to do that really quickly. Uh, we saw a report uh, just a couple of weeks ago from BMO Capital Markets that projected a very, very significant hit to our provincial GDP on a household level uh, that equates to $11,000 a year less just in that handful of years. Um, and that particularly relates to the new replacement for the carbon pricing system, the output-based pricing system. Um, so those are implemented as proposed. Um, we would be seriously constraining the ability of businesses to continue to invest in growing British Columbia's economy. And that is not just a number on a spreadsheet or in a report that has really, really significant consequences for people's ability to get high-paying jobs, to see wage increases, to keep up with rising costs across the board, many of which are a result of global factors. Um, and that further impacts uh, people's ability to feel like their quality of life is um, so certainly a lot for the BC government to look at, and I hope that they take this uh, valuable insight away and think over seriously what they could do to realign to the imperative we have to act now to secure economic features. This week, the aftermath of the Hamas incursion into Israel and the start of a war now six days in has captured everyone's attention. Where do you see things headed? Well, it's been an absolute tragedy, first of all, and heartbreaking to see the losses. About uh, 3,000 people have lost their lives in both Israel and Palestine, uh, basically evenly split at present. And while the conflict has been simmering for decades, this amounts to the most significant casualties for Israel in decades. And uh, we're hearing a lot of uh, very concerning things. Military analysts uh, repeatedly saying that Israel can't sustain a prolonged land invasion of Gaza, which is where this seems to be headed. Of course, their airstrike capabilities are substantially more advanced, that of their adversary, um, not to say that uh, you know Hamas is not using um, you know methods in that form. They're sending drones and they're using all sorts of new tools that have been actually picked up from watching the conflicts in Ukraine and Russia, um, and that's having a heavy hit on the safety and well-being of uh, Israeli civilians. Um, but ultimately, on Israel's side, there's a limit to how aggressively they can respond uh, without losing the political, financial, and military backing of its allies. And on top of that, uh, intervention is coming from many different corners right now, uh, some in support of Israel and some in support of Hamas. Uh, Iran is ultimately the ringleader here. Um, they leverage both Hamas and Gaza and Hezbollah and Lebanon uh, to advance this dictatorial campaign against Israel, which it perceives as its greatest enemy, and ultimately the United States. And uh, this is really what we're seeing play out here. Uh, Egypt, as well, is threatening intervention. Uh, while the fatalities remain balanced, that is to say the Palestinian deaths do not significantly outnumber those in Israel, they say they're going to stay out of it, but that a disproportionate response will lead them to deployment. Um, and that's more than just a threat in the interest of fairness uh, or ethics. You know, Egypt's economy is on the verge of collapse. 
of the entire Arab world, 25% are Egyptian. It's a nation of 100 million, many living in or near poverty with a very young average age. And uh, the conflict in Ukraine had seriously affected their food security as a major, probably the world's biggest importer of Ukrainian wheat. Uh, so with the economy at risk of crumbling, they're desperate for foreign aid and cash injections. And as status quo, Europe regularly supports indirect economic injections to keep Egypt stable. They don't want an economic collapse triggering mass economic migration into Europe. Uh, but now, of course, Egypt has another lever, uh, the threat of involving its forces in the conflict, and certainly not on the side of Israel. Uh, so American military resources are now, in effect, being split from supporting the Ukrainians in the war against Russia, deploying rapidly to support Israel, and there's also conflict brewing elsewhere. Armenia, Serbia, and Kosovo, and even Taiwan, with the threat of Chinese invasion growing by the day. Um, so this is really a time for opponents of the United States to move, and it comes at a horrible price for human beings and our collective global security. And Margareta, what are the implications for Canada and Canadians, both in the short and long term? Well, our well-being, past, present, and future, is irrevocably tied to that of the United States. This is true not only because they're our closest neighbor and most important trading partner, but also because the U.S. military might has maintained this economic security and growth for the Western world. Uh, Team America World Police is not just about values, but it does have the effect of holding up democracy and respect for human rights globally, but it's actually an economic strategy. And military intervention to repel trade disruption and disadvantages is an essential component of why the world's mightiest economy is the way that it is, and why Americans and Canadians, by extension, can enjoy such an enviable quality of life. Either way, we need to get to peace, and I'm increasingly concerned that only the reassertion of U.S. hegemony or failing that, the emergence of a new global hegemon, will enable that peace in the long term. China is certainly angling for that role, including through its own interventions in the Middle East and around the world. But the only realistic path that is good for Canada's is that reassertion of America's might. And we can't rely on them to resolve our own economic challenges for us. That's entirely on us as Canadians. But in an insecure, unstable world, and when expected to continue in this direction for some time, there's no greater imperative for Canadian politicians and business leaders to get our own house in order. And it's only if we take decisive and effective action now to shore up our economic well-being and prosperity will we be able to maintain Canadian well-being in this era into the long term. Margareta, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. You too. Thank you.